title of the message this morning is, Who is able to enter the kingdom? Who is able to enter the kingdom? I'm guessing most of you have, have had a similar experience uh, of going to some place that had a restriction for entry, um, whether it was maybe a theme park, uh, maybe it wasn't just entry getting into the park, but entry to get onto a certain ride, right? They got the little marker there and you have to be a certain height and you've probably been the kid, right? Maybe, or it could have been like Noah's Ark or, or Six Flags. You've been the kid who has gone and you're like, I hope I'm tall enough, right? And you go and it's like, oh shoot, I can't get on the ride because I'm not tall enough. Well, those types of things are in place for good reasons, right? They're in place for, for the safety of those who, who do these crazy things, right? Um, there's other examples of, of entry, right? You're not getting on an airplane if you don't have a ticket for that flight and you don't have a proper ID. Uh, they're, they're just not going to let you on. And for me, as I was thinking about this, probably the most sobering example was when Hadassah was born. Uh, Hadassah was born when we lived in Beijing, and we had to go to the U.S. Embassy to get her, her, uh, birth, her birth certificate. And Getting into an embassy is no joke. Uh, they are guarded very heavily, and I actually didn't know this. I went and looked it up yesterday, but the, it is actually a, a, a part of the Marine Corps. It's called the Marine Corps Security Guards, and there's about 100 Marines at least at each of these embassies. There's like 100 and, around like 180 different places around the world that these Marines are stationed, and so there's like at least 100 Marines on, on duty at any time in these embassies and they're trained to guard that place with their lives. Um, and so like, there's no, you don't like walk in, you're not joking around like, oh, here's my fake passport or what, you know, like this is dead serious to get in because you're, you're literally going into another kingdom, right? And you're not gonna just waltz in there without a, a proper proof of citizenship. Well, as we look at our text for today and ask the question, who is able to enter the kingdom we are confronted with a similar reality. Nobody is just waltzing into the kingdom of God without proper proof of citizenship. And we have to look at this passage here today in the context of last week's passage and the next two weeks passages. So pretty much all of Luke chapter 18 and then the beginning of chapter 19, the account of Zacchaeus. The rich ruler who is introduced here, he is both paralleled and contrasted with others in this chapter and then with Zacchaeus. And I think this is very intentional. The parallel for the rich ruler would be the Pharisee in verses 9 through 12. Remember, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. This rich ruler quite likely heard this parable. He was probably there. He saw uh, Jesus. He was part of the target audience, part of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And the Pharisee in that parable, he listed all the ways that he wasn't unrighteous like the tax collector. Chris talked about this last week. So that's the, that's the parallel. Now the rich ruler is contrasted with three others. He's contrasted with the tax collector in that same parable who wasn't even, he was standing far off. He wouldn't lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
He's also contrasted with the children in verses 15 to 17, where Jesus says, tells them to let the children come to him and not to hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So we're going to get into a little bit of that, that kind of contrast there between the children and the rich ruler. The next is the blind beggar, which we're going to see next week in verses 35 to 42. He's the one who cries out to Jesus for mercy. He has nothing to offer. He can't save himself. He cries out for mercy. And then Zacchaeus, he's contrasted with Zacchaeus in chapter 19, 1 through 10. The guy who had stolen from others, he recognizes his wrong, and he restores stolen goods to those who he defrauded. So don't miss those parallels and those contrasts that Jesus is making here as we see issues not only related to salvation, but about the expectations of those who identify as Jesus' disciples. And this is something that has been prominent throughout Luke's gospel, especially as it relates to our attachment to material wealth. Luke's gospel is specifically of the four gospels is the one where Jesus talks the most about money and about our attachments to our earthly things. So we're going to be looking at four things this morning about kingdom entry or eternal life. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Four things, and we're going to go through them in order. An honest question, an honest question, a hard reality, powerful grace, and a promised reward. An honest question, a hard reality, powerful grace, and a promised reward. First, an honest question in verse 18. The rich ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a simple, straightforward question. Uh, In light of Jesus' rebuke of the disciples just before this, it's helpful to note in Matthew and Mark both have this account of the rich young ruler. And in both of them, the passage of the little children comes right before it. So all three gospel writers are very, very specifically, you know, you'll see sometimes they'll, they'll put things in different orders. They very specifically put these two passages right next to each other to show the contrast between the little children entering the kingdom with, with nothing to, to bring, nothing to offer, and this ruler asking how he may inherit eternal life. Even though that's the case, okay, even though there's that contrast there, we shouldn't read this question and assume that it's a bad question just because of that contrast or just because of the interaction that follows. I'll kind of tell you where I'm going here. It's helpful to consider some other similar questions that people asked Jesus and asked the apostles in the book of Acts. For example, John chapter 6, starting in verse 26, Jesus tells the crowd, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Notice here the dependence on Jesus. The Son of Man will give it to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do? Same word that the rich ruler uses here, okay? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now notice Jesus doesn't say, well, there's nothing you can do. It's all grace, which is true, but that doesn't eliminate the need for us to respond. 
Okay, they ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And Jesus follows this up with the declaration that he is the bread of life. And then he gives this amazing summary of what they are to do. He says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Notice that those who look and believe have eternal life. The very thing that the rich ruler asks what he can do to attain. So there is no issue in Jesus' eyes with this question. What must I do or what can I do? That's not a problem, okay? Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon at Pentecost This is right after he tells the Jews who are gathered in Jerusalem that they are the ones who crucified Jesus. He tells them, you are all guilty. And what do they say? They said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Right? What shall we do in response to this? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Lastly, Acts 16. The Philippian jailer, he's about to kill himself because Paul and Silas have escaped from prison. But Paul stops him and tells him not to harm himself. And the jailer's first question is, sirs, what must I do to be saved, right? What must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I think this is very practical stuff for us as we engage with people on the gospel. If someone asks you, What must I do to be saved? Or how do I become a Christian? This is a wonderful passage, Luke 18 here, along with those other passages I just mentioned, to help lead someone through thinking through that question. However, this is just one side of the coin, okay? And that is that there is a response demanded. We should be able to tell people, look on Jesus Believe in Jesus. Repent and be baptized. And we know that baptism doesn't save us, but that is the appropriate response accompanying our repentance and belief. Someone shouldn't be able to say, well, I'm willing to believe in Jesus, but I'm not willing to be baptized. I'm not willing to identify with the visible church. That is part of the package. So that's the first side of the coin, that there is a response demanded. And we'll see the other side of the coin in a little bit. But the fact that a response to Jesus, uh, that a doing is necessary, this is clear in the way that Jesus responds. And it also helps to inform our evangelistic conversations and to gauge where people might be at with the Lord as we engage them on these things. Next, though, we're going to see a hard reality in verses 19 to 25. A hard reality. Now, this is one of those, verse 19 here is one of those verses that has caused quite a stir among scholars. Um, 
Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? The man had said, good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And the critical scholars will say, see, Jesus knew that he wasn't God. He said, he's not good. He's saying here that he's not good. That's hardly the point. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't say, I'm not good. I think what he's doing here is this ruler is coming at him and he's, he's trying to flatter him. He's trying to just kind of talk him up. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to work, buddy. You can't butter me up. Like he, he goes after the approach that the guy is taking. And I think we see that because Jesus really goes right for the jugular here. He goes right to the Ten Commandments. That's where he points the rich ruler. He gives him here commandments five through nine. Uh, We call this the the second table of the law. These are the commandments that deal with relationships with other people. It's the horizontal, uh, the horizontal commands. And he lists them. uh, Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Uh, We could go back to to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus kind of takes some of those commandments and takes them to another level, right? Like you, you think you've done these things, actually, uh, there, there's a higher standard. He doesn't say that here, but that's been a consistent part of his teaching. And the ruler responds thinking that he's done a pretty good job. Uh, he says to Jesus, all these I have kept from my youth. And this is, again, a guy, going back to verse 9, is, this is a guy who trusted in himself that he was righteous. He, he said, yep, I'm pretty good. I've done all of these things since I was a youth. So what does Jesus do then? He doesn't say, oh, nice job, well done, right? No, he raises the bar even higher. Verse 22, when he heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So is Jesus saying here that selling all of your possessions and distributing to the poor is the same thing as repenting and believing and looking to Jesus for salvation? No. Emphatically, no. But as we have seen throughout Luke, we could look at chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 14, passages that specifically emphasize the cost of discipleship. These things are going to flow out of a life that is committed to Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean, as we've said many times before in similar passages, it doesn't mean that every Christian is commanded to actually sell all of their possessions in order to truly follow Jesus. I mean, if we all sold everything and just went and wandered around, that's not actually what Jesus has for us. But what he is doing here is he's drilling down into the heart of this man's specific idolatry. He's looking at what is the thing that is keeping him out of the kingdom? What is keeping him from full commitment to Jesus? And for this man, it is his money. It's his earthly wealth and his possessions. Verse 23, we see this. He says, When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus reiterates this in verses 24 and 25 when he talks about how difficult it will be for someone with this amount of wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he gives that famous camel not being able to go through an eye of a needle um, analogy there. So when there is something, what he's trying to get at here is what when there is something that has total control of your life, it doesn't have to be money, uh, it could be fame, it could be social status, 
It could be food or sex or video games. It could be your work. It could be human relationships and on and on and on. When any of these things have total control of your life, it is nearly impossible to get into the kingdom of God. Now for this, for this guy, for this ruler, the love of money and the unwillingness to part with these earthly goods, this is clearly a major hindrance that Jesus has put his finger on. So what is the takeaway here for us? If you're a Christian, the takeaway is not worrying that you're going to lose your salvation because you're struggling with some particular sin. Okay? There's plenty of other places in Scripture that we could go to to look at overcoming those particular sins and temptations and being reminded of the assurance that we have in Christ. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to ask yourself, what particular area of your life, which idolatry is keeping you from entering the kingdom of God? What has such a grip on your life that you refuse to let it go and give control of your life to Jesus? What are you happier to go to hell holding on to when you could repent and turn to Jesus and let go of that thing and grab on to eternal life? The takeaway for the Christian is to ask the same question that was asked of Jesus in verse 26 and to rejoice in the answer that Jesus gave in verse 27. That's what we're going to see next. Powerful grace. The question that we are to also ask is, then who can be saved, right? If this thing has such a grip on this man's life, and it's not possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, if it's not possible for this man to enter the kingdom of heaven because this thing has such a grip on his life, then who can be saved, right? That question implies like, we've all got things like that in our life, right? We've all got things that have a hold of us. And if that's true, is there hope for anybody? Like, can anybody be saved? And the answer is, no one by trusting in themselves that they are righteous. No one who is willing to hold on to the things of this world and not live for Jesus. The question in verse 26 and the response in verse 27, which is, what is impossible with man is possible with God. These are very closely linked in the original Greek. The verb in the question, can, who can be saved, and then the adjectives in verse 27, impossible, impossible, they're actually the same root word, which is dunamai, which is where we get our word dynamite, right? Power. Where is the power to be saved? And here's how we could translate this if we wanted to bring out that connection a little more clearly. We could say, who can possibly be saved? What is impossible with man is possible with God. Or we could say, who is able to be saved? What man is unable to do, God is able to do. Either way, the point is the same. It is only by the powerful grace of God that anyone, rich, poor, middle class, whatever, it is only by the powerful grace of God that anyone can possibly be saved. The power, 
the dynamite that is needed to blow up the idolatries that have a grip on our hearts does not lie within ourselves. We cannot light, it's not like there's a stick of dynamite in our hearts just waiting to be lit by us, right? To blow up our idolatries. We can't do it on our own. This is the other side of the coin of our evangelistic conversations that I was talking about earlier, right? Someone comes to you and says, what must I do to become a Christian? We tell them there's, some, there's things you need to do, right? You need to repent and believe. This here, though, is the other side of that coin. They do have to do something. But in reality, there's nothing that they can do until God first does what only he can do. Our dead hearts must be made alive by the regenerating power of God's spirit. Then we can repent and believe. Then we can do whatever it is that Jesus asks us to do in our discipleship. Whether it's taking up our cross daily and following him, or laying down our lives for others, or actually selling some of our possessions and giving to the poor. These things are all the fruit of our justification, our right standing with God. They are the fruit of our justification and not the root. We have to get this right or we don't get the gospel right. These things that we do are the fruit of our justification and not the root. This is the epitome of the don't put the cart before the horse idiom. The cart is all the things that we do, the things that we ought to do as Christians, the things that we are commanded by God to do. And they don't go anywhere without the horse. God's grace in Christ is the horse. Jesus' death in our place that sets us free from sin and death that we might live for him is the horse. And Peter and Jesus actually then go on to have this cart and the horse discussion here in these last three verses as we see a promised reward. Peter points out that he and the other disciples have done what the rich ruler was unwilling to do. Verse 28, he said, See, we have left our homes. Literally, that means the word is everything. We have left everything that we own and followed you. That's what Jesus told the rich ruler to do, and he didn't do it. He went away sad. Peter says, we've done this. We've done this, Jesus. And Jesus reminds Peter that he and those who have done similarly will receive many times more in this life than what they left behind. This is not the modern prosperity gospel, okay? 10 out of 11 of the disciples, excluding Judas, 10 out of the 11, only John was not martyred for his faith, okay? 10 of, the, of those who left everything to follow Jesus were murdered because they followed him, right? Where did they receive all of these things in this life? They didn't. So clearly this is talking about spiritual rewards here. And when that televangelist promises you that you'll get X amount back if you give X amount to his ministry, run for the hills, okay? Turn off the TV in the first place and then run for the hills. Don't listen to that trash. We've come full circle here now. The rich ruler asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. 
what he was unwilling to do, again, Peter and the disciples have done, and Jesus promises in verse 30 that the reward is eternal life in the age to come. He was seeking eternal life, and he didn't find it. The disciples follow Jesus, and he promises that they will have eternal life in the age to come. The reward is, in a sense, the result of the abandonment of earthly treasures in order that one might follow Jesus and gain everything that the world can't offer. But we must be reminded again that the powerful grace of God and the effectual calling that he makes by his spirit are the horse that must be before the cart of our necessary response to Jesus and our abandonment of all idolatries that seek to take his place. May God graciously grant that we would believe and follow Jesus with our whole hearts. Let us pray. Father, when we are confronted by your word with the reality of our own idolatries, when we see the sinfulness in our own hearts, we should ask this same question, who can be saved? And we confess, Father, that it is by your grace alone that any one of us can can turn from our sin, that any one of us can confess that Jesus is Lord, that any one of us can do the things that Christ commands us, that we can take up our crosses, that we can love and serve others. God, we thank you for your spirit that enables us to do these things. We thank you for your spirit that has opened up our eyes to see how desperate and how dependent we are on your powerful grace. God, as we go from here, may we preach this gospel truth to ourselves day in and day out. May we be reminded that there's nothing in our hands that we can bring. Let us be like the little children who come to Jesus fully dependent, fully in need of his power and his grace. Thank you for these truths, and thank you for these promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.